attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Courts of law are not venues for vendettas. Yet that is precisely how Letitia James has treated the justice system in pursuing her unwarranted case against Donald Trump. The New York Attorney General should face disbarment for falsely commandeering a consumer protection statute, contorting its plain meaning and then misusing the courts to exact revenge against a political opponent she openly despises. James ran for office back in 2018 on the campaign promise of getting Trump. She literally spoke those words in her rabid rhetoric suffused with strident anti-Trump diatribes. Discarding her ethical duty as if it was yesterday's trash, she pronounced the then-president guilty in the court of public opinion without real knowledge of any wrongdoing. Being bereft of facts did not deter James from accusing Trump of a pattern of money laundering, obstruction of justice, conspiring with foreign governments, and defrauding Americans. She denounced him as a, quote, illegitimate president and repeatedly declared that she'd take him down by hook or by crook. Mind you, at the time that she leveled those accusations, Letitia James had no access to evidence or documents because, as a candidate, she was not privy to any of the investigative files. But that did not stop her from vowing to target Trump for something, anything. Without conscience, James prejudged the merits of a case she had yet to bring and promised an outcome that was preordained. She then proceeded to exploit the immense powers of a high public office to achieve it. Her bitter crusade was always an investigation in search of a crime. That is an egregious violation of the sacred canons of ethics governing prosecutors. Compare Letitia James's remarks to the American Bar Association ethical standard. It reads as follows. When deciding whether to initiate or continue an investigation, the prosecutor should not be influenced by partisan or other improper political considerations or hostility or personal animus toward a potential suspect. End of quote. All right. No reasonable person can believe that Letitia James did not breach her ethical duty under that very strict professional standard. It is the sworn obligation of an attorney general to see that justice is done, not fulfill a campaign pledge by victimizing a partisan adversary. She is required to be fair and impartial. Her neutrality must rest beyond question, such that even the appearance of a conflict of interest is grounds for punishment. Disbarment is the proper penalty for such disgraceful conduct. Sadly, that will not happen. In New York, the far-left Bar Association has now evolved into an activist 
political organ of the Democrat Party. It is secretly cheering on Letitia James, and that gives the Attorney General carte blanche to abuse her authority and bastardize the law, which she is now doing shamelessly. James was counting, of course, on a biased judge to aid and abet her legal machinations against Trump. Sure enough, she got one. Watching Judge Arthur and Gorham mug and preen before the television cameras on day one is sufficient proof that this was shaping up as a Soviet-style show trial. A week earlier, Ngoran announced that Trump was guilty of fraud. That was before a single witness ever took the stand to testify. He ordered the cancellation of the defendant's business certificates in New York and directed the dissolution of Trump's companies. Now, fortunately, the appellate court late last Friday stepped in to halt Judge Ngoran's orders because there are serious concerns that his actions violate the due process rights of other non-party persons and entities involved with the Trump organization who are being punished by that dissolution order. They were given no notice, no right to be heard, no trial, no chance to even defend themselves without authority, and Gorin's order deprived them of cherished constitutional rights. And he did it under a twisted interpretation of a New York consumer protection law. That's not protecting the consumer, it's punishing the consumer. In fact, the entire fraud trial relies on that same statute. It is intended for cases where the general public has been harmed. But here, no one in the public was harmed at all. The banks made more than $100 million in profits from the loans to Trump that were promptly repaid. The insurance companies that provided coverage, they also made out like bandits. Judging Goran seems oblivious to all of this. He has perverted the context of that statute and allowed Letitia James, the attorney general, to pursue Trump for fraud without ever having to prove the basic elements of fraud normally demanded by law. Trump is also being deprived of proper due process under the 5th, the 7th, and 14th Amendments. At its core, this case is all about valuations of property. Well, that's highly subjective. It's a matter of opinion, not fact. Disparities are quite routine and common. But the lenders and insurers did their own independent due diligence. They were counseled by top law firms armed with skilled attorneys, accountants, and real estate experts, all of whom confirmed Trump's valuations and found no fraud or false statements. Moreover, Trump's valuations complied with generally accepted accounting principles. They were performed not by Donald Trump himself, but by hired professionals who vouched for their own conclusions and will testify at trial that they were indeed valid. In granting summary judgment ahead of trial in favor of Letitia James, Judge Ngoron accepted a valuation of a tax appraiser 
in Palm Beach County, Florida, that the fabled Mar-a-Lago estate is only worth a paltry $18 million at minimum. (laughs) That is utterly laughable. And it's actually based solely on generated income, not the underlying value of the property. In that coveted and exclusive Florida enclave, you can't buy a porta potty for that price. Community real estate experts estimate that the nearly 20 acres of land alone is worth upwards of $500 million. And that doesn't take into account the historic Mediterranean-style mansion that comprises 126 rooms on 62,000 square feet, as well as the other impressive structures situated on the land. Attorney General Letitia James has obliterated any semblance of an objective and neutral prosecutor. Her hatred of Trump is palpable and laid bare in her chronic condemnations of him and the invectives she's hurled for years. The civil fraud case James brought is nothing more than a pernicious vendetta driven by prejudice, blatantly singling out an individual for personal and political reasons violates the guarantee of equal protection under the law. It's an affront to justice. Not surprisingly, it bears a striking resemblance to some of the other criminal indictments against the former president. The common denominator is an unscrupulous political persecution under the guise of legitimate prosecution. Letitia James is the one who should be facing legal consequences for her malicious actions, her debasement of the law, and the corruption of her office. Joining me now is David Schoen, a veteran criminal defense attorney and well-known civil liberties lawyer. David, thanks so much for talking with us. Um, this seemed from the very beginning to be a political vendetta brought against Donald Trump uh, under the guise of a legitimate prosecution, but really a persecution. What are your views on it? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it has, first of all, by way of process, it has all the earmarks of each of the other so-called investigations or trials. A prosecutor or investigative authority that runs on a campaign of getting Trump and ensuring uh, going after Trump, totally unethical campaign pledge, uh, singling out an individual like that. Then the case gets assigned to a judge who clearly has a bias in the case. You know, this judge has been, has had two other major developer cases in which he's ruled against the developer and each time he's been reversed. Um, You know, this is a very serious undertaking. You're talking about stripping uh, President Trump of his businesses that are an international brand unilaterally by a judge with this kind of bias. And he thinks it's appropriate to make comments during the case, quoting the Marx brothers and um, issuing this unbelievable gag order last week that comes so vague and broad, he ordered that President Trump can't make any comment about any court personnel. So literally, if President Trump said, "The gee, the court deputy sure is tall, 
That would violate the, the language of this order. It's just un- unprecedented. But in any event, he's allowed to say he's a defendant in a case. He's allowed to challenge the process publicly and to say he doesn't like the judge or he thinks the judge is biased. And the public has an independent right to know all of those things. Finally, I would say on this, on this, on this score, the timing is not coincidental. I mean, Donald Trump's been in business for how many decades with the same accounting firm and so on. The idea that they bring this case now after her campaign pledges in the middle of an election campaign and that she uses the most extraordinarily broad statute, this New York Executive Law 6312, which gives her, the prosecutor, tremendous powers, the judge, tremendous unilateral unchecked powers other than by a court of appeals. It's just it's not coincidental. It's clearly politically motivated. What I find so bewildering and confounding is that the statute that you refer to, this business law uh, statute, it is a consumer protection law meant to protect the public from harm. But here, uh, no one has been harmed. And the only uh, people who were involved were the banks and the insurance companies. The banks made $100 million in profit plus interest on the loans. And, and the insurance companies made huge profits. So where is the harm required under the statute, David? Greg, I mean, that's a critically important point that I hope every listener will understand. That's what's so extraordinary about this statute. There's no requirement of any identifiable vic- victim under the statute. There's no requirement of any loss. It's a very broad definition of fraud. And as the cases under it is said, it does away with the traditional elements of fraud altogether. Usually with a fraud, we have to show that somebody relied on this to their detriment. The case law is clear. Under this statute, there's no detrimental reliance required. It's simply as clear as this. The judge can say, I find, as he did, that Donald Trump has overvalued his properties um, by the way, he loses all credibility there with his Mar-a-Lago even suggestion that it'd be worth $18 million when it's worth multiple times that. But anyway, a, unil- a judge can unilaterally say, as he has said, that I believe these properties are overvalued. Therefore, that's a fraud, even though no one relied on it, even though every loan was paid back, even though people made money off of it, even though it's developed into an international respected brand and simply strip him of his business certificates, put him out of business as to those properties. That remedy, by the way, is part of what's going on with the appeal. And even, you know, left-wing commentators have suggested that maybe the judge went too far. The Washington Post did a piece on, uh, Ms. Marcus wrote an editorial on going too far, perhaps, with Trump. Um, and other, other commentators who are very anti-Trump have questioned whether the remedies this judge has chosen are applicable under the statute, whether he has this authority. It's scary to everyone because it may be Trump today, but, uh, you know, what's going to happen uh, next year, the year after to someone else? So last Friday, late in the day, the appellate court put a halt to Judge Goran's order to get rid of the business certificates, dissolve Trump businesses. Apparently, there are serious concerns uh, that the trial court judge's actions violated the due process rights of other non-party persons and entities who were involved with the Trump organization uh, and being directly harmed by the judge's ruling to dissolve. I mean, they weren't given a notice or a right to be heard or a trial or a chance to defend their interests. 
um, isn't that a deprivation of their due process constitutional rights? Absolutely. And consider how many jobs would be lost by this, how much money, income to the economy would be lost from this. Um, it's an American brand. But yeah, so the Court of Appeals acted. Um, the lawyers for President Trump asked the Court of Appeals to stay the remedy that Judge Engeron had imposed, that is putting a receiver in place, the company is taking away the, re, the business certificates immediately and so on. And they asked them to stop the civil fraud trial proceedings that are going on now. The attorney general opposed the latter, that is stopping the trial, and the court, the appellate division refused to stop the trial. The attorney general didn't oppose um, asking the court, the appellate division to put a stay on the stripping of business certificates until the issues are resolved. And so the appellate division went along with sort of the joint application, in a sense, of the parties to at least stay that remedy, because, you know, that could really be irreparable harm. You take away those business certificates. Now you're putting people out of work. You're having somebody else control all of Donald Trump's you know major properties. there not all, but significant properties. Um, extraordinary remedy. Uh, many have suggested the judges without authority for, and so the court of the appellate division wisely said, as the parties had indicated, that they need to really consider the substantive arguments under the issues before taking that kind, allowing that kind of extraordinary relief to take hold. The stay imposed by the appellate court, notwithstanding, it looks like the die is cast here. Judge Arthur Ngoron is going to find further against Trump in the very manner that he did in the summary judgment before the trial ever began. So is there, in your judgment, a very good case to be made on appeal to reject the rulings of the trial court judge? Yes, I think there is. I think the relief is extraordinary. You raised due process. Um, you know, that's clearly what appears to be going on here now, taking without due process. I think that the application of this statute in this kind of uh, situation with this sort of extraordinary remedy is not what was intended by the drafters. You know, you have the whole other element here of uh, not having a jury, having this judge unilaterally decide this issue. There's been a good bit written about that. So I'd like to try to sort of clear that up here to the extent it can be cleared up. Well, the judge said Um, on the opening day, he said, even if you ask for a jury, you can't have one under this statute. Right. Well, he also said in the very beginning that the reason there's no jury trial right now is nobody asked me for one. Um, that was an unfair comment. But here's the situation. The lawyers, in my view, the lawyers should have filed a jury demand under C- um, New York Civil Practice Law and Rules 4102. When the note of issue is filed, that is the complaint's been filed and discovery has been completed, note of issue is filed. Then the defense lawyer has 15 days to ask for a jury trial if the plaintiff didn't ask for it. They didn't do that here. Now, um, there is a case. case there not much, there's not much case law under this statute in the first place. Cases go back and forth. But there's a 2011 case that says there from this same court, it says there is no right to a jury trial under this law, 6312. The reason I would have raised it is to preserve the issue. Right. I think there's a very strong argument, due process argument, right to jury trial argument, um, and so on to be made. That when you're talking about this kind of disproportionate, extraordinary relief, these look like damages. These don't look like equitable relief. And therefore, there should be a jury trial. I think they blew it there. I think they should have raised it. 
I hope now that they'll preserve it. And one argument for preserving it is this judge, remember, sanctioned these lawyers for making arguments he believed to be frivolous. How did they know if they didn't raise a uh, jury demand when there's a case that says you don't get a jury trial, he wouldn't have sanctioned them again for that? He he argued to those defense lawyers, well, you're repeating the same arguments you made in the injunction. Yeah. Well, wait a minute, judge. <laughs> An injunction standard of proof is far different than at trial. And so it would be legal malpractice if they didn't raise again or reiterate the same arguments that were made in an injunction. That is such an obvious thing. Even a first-year law student in civil procedure would know that, and yet this judge seems utterly unaware. Or he's aware and he, uh, you know, and he just uh, is sticking it to them. I thought the sanctions was completely out of order. And they made clear that, among other reasons, they were raising, continuing to raise them in order to preserve them, to make clear that they didn't waive the arguments in any manner. Yeah. You know, what is so troubling to me is how this case came about. Letitia James, who was running for attorney general, a position she didn't already have, in 2008, on the campaign trail, literally said, I'm going to get Trump. All right. And she goes on these anti-Trump diatribes, accusing him of money laundering, obstruction of justice, conspiring with foreign governments, defrauding Americans. She denounces him as an illegitimate president uh, and she repeatedly uh, promises that she's going to take him down. Now, this is before she has access to any documents or any evidence. She's not privy to any investigative files at that point in time. And yet she vows to target Trump with a prosecution. Now, that is in direct violation of the canons of ethics that govern prosecutors. And in my earlier remarks, I uh, recited verbatim the American Bar Association Ethical Standard 2.1, which she clearly has violated. Now, you know, in any other jurisdiction other than New York or California, um, she would be facing uh, sanctions, suspension, disbarment, uh, all kinds of penalties. But of course, this is the New York Bar, which is a very activist political organization on behalf of Democrats. And as I said earlier, uh, you know, they're cheering her on. So she has carte blanche to do whatever she wants, to target an individual for personal and political reasons of vendetta. As a lawyer like you, I find this to be one of the most disgraceful aspects of this entire matter. And it goes for Alvin Bragg, the district attorney in Manhattan also, who in the criminal case ran on the same platform. He vowed to be the candidate who would get Donald Trump at a time when Donald Trump wasn't even under investigation. So they use uh, a political agenda. They campaign on this thing, which clearly unethical, um, and they get away with it. I, I can't imagine why the bar doesn't take action. Um, they don't deserve to be practicing law. People put trust in what government officials say. The cases make it clear. That's why the government's held to a higher standard. These are public prosecutors uh, targeting a citizen who in their jurisdiction may be politically unpopular. 
It's bullyism, it, it, but it's clearly unethical among everything else, and they don't deserve to have their law licenses any longer. To the merits of the case as, as we wrap up our conversation, you know, I wrote about this two or three years ago. This is all about valuations of property. Well, that's highly subjective. It's opinion. It's not fact. You will have disparities that are quite routine in valuations. Lenders and insurers, as a consequence, do their own due diligence. They hire accountants. Some of the best lawyers in America, the top law firms, uh, were retained by Deutsche Bank to look at this, to do their own determinations of the value in exchange as collateral for the loans. And they didn't find any fraud. They didn't find any false statements. And they roughly determined uh, that the uh, valuations justified the loans. And indeed, as we discussed earlier, they made $100 million on these loans. Some of the loans were paid back early by Donald Trump. So I, I find it so disturbing that a judge sets, steps in, as well as Letitia James, the attorney general, and says, these are fraudulent valuations. Aren't there professionals and experts who will, at trial, uh, take the witness stand and say, are you kidding me? The, these valuations are proper. We stood by them. We signed off on them. And aren't those relevant issues of fact that the judge should have first listened to before uh, declaring before trial that Trump was guilty of fraud? Yeah, the judge, you know, demeaned all the evidence that he had earlier in this case on valuation. He's usurped the role of experts in the case. He's completely diminished the value of brand, that these are Donald Trump properties, which, you know, in many people's eyes, uh, increases their value tremendously. Um, I mean, again, the Mar-a-Lago thing is an extraordinary example. That's there's, I don't know if there's any property like it down in South Florida. Um, but yeah, that's part of the problem with this statute that hopefully is a reason he will get uh, reversed on appeal for, you know, his unfettered uh, use of abuse of discretion in this case. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty scary, frankly, especially when you're talking about real estate and valuations that fluctuate so extraordinarily. Um, but they're just, you know, real estate is unique and there are some reasons why some people will pay what seems like an absolutely absurd amount of money for a piece of property. There are reasons why, uh, foreign nationals try to buy pieces of property here to get a stake in the, you know, the greatest country in the world and so on. Um, so we see it all the time. Yeah, that, that's where it's really ripe for abuse here. And I'm afraid this judge is just the one to abuse it. Last question. And let me switch subjects to a different case, the criminal indictment, uh, involving classified documents that is, uh, being brought in Florida. Uh, the judge there also late last week put a halt to all the deadlines, uh, that had been scheduled before the May 20th planned trial, May 20th of next year. I said from the very beginning when this case was brought uh, by the special counsel, wait a minute, all of the evidence here, other than the obstruction charges, involve classified documents. You got an evidentiary problem here because Donald Trump is entitled under the Sixth Amendment to a public trial. The public is allowed to watch and see the evidence. Trump himself 
is allowed to challenge witnesses based on the classified document evidence. But the jurors don't have security clearance for that. The public certainly doesn't. And yes, there's a SIPA law that provides from some guidance, but it's not a solution here. Isn't this a difficult problem for the special counsel in bringing his case because he can't show in open court the documents that he claims are a threat to national security? Yeah, and it's very important in a case like this. It's a case of such great public interest. Um, it just proves, you know, again, why this case never should have been brought. The judge had to extend the deadlines because of complaints that the prosecutor is not turning over evidence in a timely manner. And this issue that you raised, you know, the Fourth Circuit developed the test in a case called United States versus Mallory. But it, it, I think it's completely subject to real constitutional challenge, Sixth Amendment challenge, challenge the public trial, challenge to the defendant's right to confrontation. The jury is only privy to some of the evidence. They have secret proceedings in which the defendant can't hear some of the evidence and all of that. It it just isn't right. It's not the American way. And this isn't the case to use those kinds of procedures in when it's a case involving former president of the United States, um, who their active uh, um, efforts going on to try to bar him from becoming president again, to try to lock him up in prison. The public in this case has to be transparent or it shouldn't be brought. David Schoen, always a pleasure to discuss these legal issues with you. You you bring uh, your experience as a civil liberties lawyer, a criminal defense attorney, and thanks for taking the time to join The Brief. Thank you. Great to talk to you. You do a great job. Thank you very much. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.